Ray and Faye Copeland raised six children and ran their modest farm for decades. After their children were grown, Ray needed help on the farm. He began hiring transient men from cities hours away from his property. And one by one, the men went missing. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. As always, I'm glad you're here and I hope you're doing well. I have a quick announcement in light of the fact that I won't be able to do any in-person meetups or events for the next few months, if not the rest of the year. I've decided to partner with a company called Get Vocal to do some live streams. It'll be me on video, sometimes with a guest or two, and then you all will be in the chat room. It's kind of like a Facebook Live, a YouTube stream, a Twitch thing that my kids like to watch. I'll be throwing out questions about recent episodes to get your thoughts on them, and we can just hang out. This is a chance to take this podcast and make it a little bit more interactive. To kick this off, we're going to start with a virtual birthday party since my birthday is this month and I am enjoying it looking at the walls of my house. I'll leave the info in the show notes and it'll be up on my social media. All you have to do to get ready is either download the Get Vocal app or go to their website to create an account. You can watch on the app or you can watch on your computer. And that's Get Vocal. Vocal is V-O-K-L. I'm going to be on on Thursday, April 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern U.S. time, 7 Central. It will also push the broadcast to Facebook Live if you want to watch there, but I'm not entirely sure I'll be able to manage comments in both places. So if you want to comment, I definitely recommend being on Get Vocal just in case my brain can't manage both, which is entirely possible. I know a lot of you have thoughts on last week's episode, Franklin Delano Floyd, and we will definitely be talking about it. And if you can't make it this week, it's going to be the same bat time, same bat channel, pretty much every Thursday. Like I said, this is going to make it more interactive. We're going to get to connect. It won't just be me talking in your ear, and I can get your feedback on what you think about these cases. So Thursday, 8 Eastern, 7 Central on Get Vocal. Again, details in the show notes. That wasn't quite as quick of an announcement as I had thought, so let's go ahead and jump into this week's episode. It's really odd how I heard about this case. I was sitting in a hotel room in St. Louis a couple of months ago, and I had forensic files on, as background noise, as you do. And then my ears perked up because I started hearing familiar city names like Chillicothe. And I knew that this story of Ray and Faye Copeland was going to take place here in Missouri. So instead of it being background noise, I started really watching it, and I just knew I had to cover it. I want to thank Jess for her help researching this one. I'm sure you all know that Forensic Files is a great show, but they really focus on the forensics and some of the other details just don't get covered. So Jess and I decided to get into those other details. Ray and Faye Copeland have this cutesy matching 
name, but what was behind this marriage was decidedly not cute. Ray was born in December 1914 in Oklahoma, but his family ended up settling in the Ozarks in Arkansas. As a teenager and a young man, he was showing antisocial behaviors. You know when you're driving down the road and a squirrel runs out, so you try to miss? Well, Ray, he did the opposite. He also turned to fraud, forgery, thievery. He even stole from his own family. By the time he was 20, he had stolen government checks from his brother, John. He stole hogs from his father and sold them. And as an adult, his brother, looking back on his childhood, said that Ray was just never quite right. But there is a point in here where Ray did have an accident. I believe it was at a rodeo and he suffered a traumatic head injury. It would have been the late 1920s, early 1930s, and it's not been recorded whether there were significant personality changes around this time. It did cause permanent brain damage, which would be discovered much later on. Ray met, courted, and married Faye in the span of about five or six months in 1940. He was 26 and she was 19. The two went on to have six children and they moved from Arkansas to California, back to Arkansas, up to Illinois, down to Missouri. And once they got to Missouri, they moved from city to city for several years. And these moves often followed Ray's arrest and conviction for some type of livestock thieving or arrests for bounced checks. He dragged his family, who were dirt poor already, all over the place. In 1967, the family settled down by buying a farm in Mooresville, Missouri, population around 100 at the time. It's east of Chillicothe, which is the main city out that way, with a population of 9,000. So, you know, the main city has less than 10,000 people. We're talking a very rural area with lots and lots of farms, mostly cattle and livestock farms. Ray was 53 years old at the time, so we have decades of him moving the family around and getting arrested, and now we have him settling down. During their time in Mooresville, Ray managed to more or less keep his terribleness quiet. The arrests stopped after 1971, where he was arrested for passing a bad check in Buffalo, Missouri. But the family was still struggling financially. Faye was working at a glove factory just to cover the mortgage on the farm, while Ray tried to make the farm work. In the early 1980s, Faye quit the factory and took a job as a housekeeper at a local motel. So here's the problem with the Copeland farm. Ray wasn't good at business. Cattle farming has a lot of expenses. You need to know how to buy, you need to know how to sell, and you need to know how to maintain the stock you have. One of the biggest issues Ray had was that he was undereducated and somewhat illiterate. He left school in the fourth grade, but what he had was what we would consider more like a first grade level education. He could do basic arithmetic and read basic passages, but he had a lot of trouble writing and reading for comprehension. 
Ray had to rely on Faye to keep the books and ledgers for him. But Faye would not speak up if she saw things were not adding up or there was an issue with how Ray was running the farm. There have been two reasons given by Faye and family members as to why this was. One was that she was raised in a fundamentalist family where the husband was the boss, the wife was submissive, and a good wife didn't contradict or dominate her husband. And the other reason is Faye was trying to avoid getting beaten by her husband. So she'd write down whatever Ray said to write down. She wouldn't advise, consult, talk back, contradict, or ask questions. Broken bones and bruises were not uncommon in that family. The claims of abuse have been backed up by the Copeland children and by Ray's family. They said Faye was treated like garbage. And it wasn't just Faye. It was towards all of the children as well. In the Forensic Files episodes, one of their sons said that Ray beat him because a cow kicked over a milk bucket while he was milking the cow. Cows kicking over milk cans is unfortunate, but not uncommon. And it's completely unrealistic for Ray to expect it never to happen. But Ray got angry. He grabbed whatever object was within reach and began beating his son with it. Another story he told was of his brother getting hit with a pan because the brother had scraped the bottom of his bowl with his spoon while he was eating oatmeal. The sound annoyed Ray, so he grabbed whatever was within reach to hit his son with, and in this case, it was a pan. So this was a man with a temper that would be set off by anything at all, and there's no way to predict it. Faye said she wrote down what Ray told her to write down because of this. Their neighbors in Mooresville and Chillicothe and the greater area didn't seem to know about this abuse because they didn't know much about the family at all. The family largely kept to themselves, and Ray became known as a bit of a jerk around town, being rude to people. So it's not like anyone was begging to be his friend. So Ray's having trouble making these 40 acres of land make money, even when he had the free labor of his children. But eventually, they all moved out. And after the childhood they had, I genuinely hope they found happiness and stability as adults. Ray, though, was in a bind in the early 1980s without their help. Financially, things shouldn't have been awful. They weren't rich by any means, but they were used to incredibly frugal living. And Ray hadn't been arrested for writing bad checks since 1971, so they didn't have these outstanding legal issues where they're paying his bond constantly. Both were collecting Social Security payments, so Ray really just had to make enough to cover expenses. But at this point, he's in his 70s. He couldn't work the farm by himself, and it stretched their finances having to take on the expense of hiring help. So in 1987, Ray did file bankruptcy, and the bankruptcy helped the couple get on more even ground, and Ray could continue to hire farmhands to keep his cattle operation going. Usually in small communities like this, when you're hiring help, you hire local. Someone's teenager or young adult is looking to make some money. 
And it benefits everybody because the person hiring them knows they have farm experience because they work on the farm down the road. But even though these neighbors' kids would knock on the Copeland door asking if they had any work, Ray would always turn them away. Instead, he would drive to a homeless shelter in Springfield, Missouri, to hire men there. At least once, he went to Joplin, Missouri. That initially surprised me a bit to read because Springfield is three and a half hours from Chillicothe, and Joplin is even farther than that. Kansas City, which also had a large men's homeless shelter, would only be an hour and a half away. Or there's Des Moines, Iowa, which is two and a half hours from Chillicothe. I came up with two reasons for this, and the first was that Ray wanted to take people farther away from their community roots for a con he was running, which we're going to get into in a second. But that doesn't entirely fit, because one, the people he hired were transients, and as far as we know, only one of them had any ties to Springfield outside of the shelter. And then going to Des Moines, which was in another state would actually have removed people farther since national databases were not as prevalent in the 80s. And he also never went to St. Louis, which was just as far away from Springfield and actually a little closer than Joplin. So that leads me to the real reason I think he went to Springfield and Joplin instead of Kansas City, St. Louis, or even Des Moines. I think Ray probably only wanted to hire white people. Springfield and Joplin are majority white towns upwards of 80 or 90 percent white. Whether it's his own prejudices or worries that a black farmhand would stick out too much in rural Missouri and be too memorable, that's up for debate. But I definitely think this is why he went to Springfield and Joplin. It is not entirely clear how many homeless men Ray Copeland hired this way, though there are indications that it was at least a dozen, if not two dozen, men. We don't know how many were hired for honest farm work, but we do know that probably around 9 to 12 were hired for what turned out to be a huge fraud. So here's what Ray would do. He would drive down to the shelters and find men who were looking for work. He would offer them $50 a day in cash, plus room and board. Minimum wage at the time was $3.35 an hour. So even if these men worked 12-hour farm shifts, they were still making more than minimum wage a day in cash, plus they were given room and board on top of it. And that room and board really sweetens the pot because one of the biggest obstacles for someone to overcome homelessness is coming up with the deposits needed to get into an apartment. Even if they're working and can afford the monthly rent, how are they going to have double or triple that in savings just to be allowed to move in? The worse their rental history, the less room they have to negotiate those moving costs. So Ray never had a shortage of men willing to get in his truck and head out to the middle of nowhere to work on his farm. One of these men was 23-year-old Dennis Murphy. He was from Illinois. Ray hired him from the shelter in 1986. 
the first thing Ray did was bring Dennis to the post office to set up a P.O. box in Dennis's name. Once that was done, they went to the bank, where Dennis opened a checking account with a few hundred dollars that Ray fronted him. The bank gave him some checks to use while he waited on the personalized ones to be printed and mailed to him. Ray then took Dennis to the cattle auction. He asked Dennis to bid on some cattle for him and to write the check from his new account. Dennis did as he was asked, and Ray took the cattle back to his farm, where he immediately sold them. At some point in late October 1986, not long after Dennis had gone to the farm, the police showed up at Ray Copeland's place. Faye let them in, and they told Ray they were looking for a farmhand of his, Dennis Murphy. Dennis had written bad checks at the cattle auction, and they had bounced. Ray said he wasn't surprised. He pulled out a check Dennis had given him that he tried to cash, and it came back with insufficient funds. By the time he learned the check was bad, Dennis had taken off in the middle of the night. So Ray was also a victim of Dennis's con. The police had barely left when Ray had a new farmhand to carry out the same thing, 44-year-old Wayne Warner of Bloomington, Illinois. Just like Dennis, Wayne came into town, bid on some cattle, and left before the checks bounced. As Ray continued to run this cattle scam, he got a bit smarter about it. First, he didn't want the police showing up every time a farmhand's check bounced or they would catch on to Ray's role in this. So he tried to make sure the men weren't too obviously connected to him. The second thing he learned was to have a few smaller bids go through without issue. Once the auction house had a few checks clear, the man Ray hired would have good standing there and could bid larger amounts, still pay with a check, and then walk away that day with the livestock. Once that larger check bounced, the man never showed up again and the cattle were long gone, Ray having sold them as soon as they made it to his property. Of course, the auctioneers are reporting these bounced checks and the police are running these men's names, but they had no permanent addresses coming up. Most had convictions for petty crimes, but that was about it. It looked like they came into town, did a modern-day cattle rustling job, and were in the wind. Like I said, we don't know exactly how many people Ray used this way. The first two we know about, Dennis and Wayne, were in the fall of 1986. And then it's two years before we have another known name. Did Ray go two years without scamming? Did he take a break thinking, okay, I got away with those two, better not push my luck. But when he needed money again, he went back to it. Big question mark there. So the next hiree we know of was in 1988. 27-year-old Jimmy Dale Harvey was a little different from the other men. He's the one who did live in Springfield. He had been there for about six years at that point, 
though he was originally from Oklahoma, Andy was also in close contact with his family. That is a little hit or miss with these men. Some were always in contact with their family, some were not. Jimmy had trouble holding down a job. It's explained that it's because he had epilepsy, but I like to say it's because we lacked meaningful legislation protecting people with chronic health conditions in the workforce. Epilepsy was not the problem. Our trash worker protection laws were, and still are. But you know that's another topic for another day. Ray met Jimmy outside the homeless shelter in Springfield when he was down there shopping for workers. He offered Jimmy a job, and Jimmy excitedly took it. He called his mom, Ann, to tell her about this opportunity. It was going to give him an honest day's work and room and board. This was October 1988 when he took the job, and Ann expected to hear something from Jimmy sooner or later. After Thanksgiving passed with no word, she figured he'd show up at home for the holidays like he previously planned, but then he never showed. Anne considered reporting him missing to the police, but what exactly was she going to say? Her adult son moved for a job and didn't call her, so she decided to wait a little longer. In the meantime, Ray hired a new farmhand, 27-year-old John Freeman, and he was hired in November or December 1988. He wrote a check at an auction that bounced, and the bank closed the account. For some reason, the address on this account was back at the Copeland Farm, not a P.O. box like the other men. Though the amount in the bank account wasn't enough to cover the check that had been written, There was a small balance in there, so when the bank closed the account, they mailed a check for the remainder to Ray Copeland's farm. It came as certified mail, and Faye signed for it. When she opened it and realized what it was, she returned it to her mailman saying she didn't know who John Freeman was. She then went to the bank to tell them that there was some kind of error, there was no John Freeman at her address, and she asked them to stop sending anything for John Freeman to her home. A few months later, sometime between February and April 1989, Jimmy Harvey's mother, Anne, got contacted by either the bank or the prosecutor saying that Jimmy had bounced a check on his account for $1,600, which is like $5,000 today, and he had done it at an auction in Odessa, Missouri. Anne was surprised over this debt, but also probably a little relieved since she hadn't heard from her son in around five months. Bouncing checks wasn't the way she wanted to hear from him, but it did mean he was still out there somewhere, and it looked like he was in Odessa. But that relief was short-lived because when Anne saw the actual check, she was immediately alarmed. It was signed James D. Harvey. But Jimmy wasn't James. He was Jimmy. This didn't make any sense for him to sign his name as James. And Anne began wondering who actually signed that check. While Anne is in Oklahoma wondering about the check, Ray is hiring another man, 21-year-old Paul Cowart, who was originally from Arkansas. 
Like those before him, he disappeared after opening a bank account and bidding at some cattle auctions. At this point, it's looking like things are going to unravel for Ray Copeland sooner or later because Jimmy's mother was starting to push things about that forged check and the whereabouts of her son. We also find out later the police were looking at Ray for his role in these transients who keep writing bad checks at auctions. It was starting to come together, but it's possible they never would have gotten Ray for more than check fraud if not for the next man he hired, 57-year-old Jack McCormick. At 57, Jack was not looking to do hard labor in exchange for room and board, but Ray pitched the job to him as working the cattle auctions. Ray was 74 years old at this point, and he was hard of hearing. He told Jack that he needed someone to help out at the auction, since he couldn't keep up with all the noise and how quickly the auctioneer would speak. Jack was open to this and agreed to the job in July 1989. Like before, Ray took him to the post office and the bank, this time in Brookfield, which is about 30 minutes outside of Chillicothe. Ray had Jack sign the starter checks the bank gave him, and they immediately went to an auction where they bid and paid with a check. On August 6th, very shortly after moving to the farm, Jack was wandering around a bit when he saw bones sticking up from the dirt behind the barn. He thought it looked like a skull and a leg bone. He said Faye saw that he was back there, and she got upset, telling him that that area was off-limits. Ray didn't want anyone over there. Two days later, Ray and Jack went to another cattle auction, and Ray complained that Jack was just crap at buying cattle and at bidding. Jack told Ray, fine, he'd just quit, and he asked Ray if he would take him to Brookfield to close out the bank account that was in his name. From the court documents I have access to, it's not clear the conversation that followed, but Jack did end up going back to the farm and deciding to spend the night without having gone to the bank first. In the morning, Faye said she had to leave early for her job at the Holiday Motel, and Ray asked Jack if he would help him get a raccoon out of the barn. When they entered the barn, Jack noticed that the tractor had been pulled up with the trailer attached, and in the trailer was a shovel and some plastic sheeting. So this is the part in the movie where we're all covering our eyes, knowing what's coming next. And Jack, he started realizing what was coming next when Ray grabbed a twenty-two rifle. Now, Ray told Jack the raccoon was hiding in a hole in the ground, so he wanted Jack to use a stick or something to poke at it so it would come out and Ray could shoot it. Jack hesitated to turn his back on Ray for too long at this point, so he kept glancing back at him as they're doing this. One time when he turned around, he saw Ray had the gun pointed at him, not at the hole. Jack must have been a smooth talker because he talked Ray down. Jack said, just take me to Brookfield, I'll close out the account, and then I'll be on my way. Ray said, okay, but they had to go to the courthouse in Chillicothe first. 
When Ray and Jack got to the courthouse, Faye was sitting on the steps. According to Jack, she seemed surprised to see him. But then the three went to the bank and closed the account, even though there was an $1,100 check floating out there from the auction. Jack said goodbye to the Copelands. Then and there, he was not going back to the farm along with them by himself to go get his stuff. That night, Jack went out to a bar where he met a woman named Rose. He told Rose what happened at the farm and that he was not going to go back there to get his things because he genuinely feared for his life. Rose said she'd drive him out to the farm, posing as his sister, that way he could get his things without walking into a trap. When they got out to the farm, Ray and Faye were furious at seeing Jack. They came out of the front door yelling and cursing. Jack introduced Rose as a sister, and Faye said she didn't believe them. Rose wasn't his sister. She wrote down the name Rose gave her and her license plate number. Rose and Jack got his things and were absolutely relieved as they drove away from the farm. Jack, pretty soon after, left Missouri for Nebraska. Shortly after this, Ray hired Lothar Borner in August 1989 from a shelter in Joplin, Missouri, but Lothar couldn't get a P.O. box or a bank account set up for whatever reason, and he started getting suspicious that there wasn't a job for him, so he left soon after he arrived. And right after this, in September, Ray hired James Page. Ray had to take James to two cities before he could get a P.O. box and a bank account. According to James, and this is important, Faye was around for some of this. She even took him to a barn sale once where he was supposed to bid with money Ray had put in the bank account, and she told him that if anyone asked, she was his wife. And not only was she there, Faye was keeping the bank book. According to James, she detailed everything deposited and everything spent. James said he lived like a hermit for the three weeks he was at the farm, only leaving the property in the company of Faye and Ray. And in spite of the promise of $50 a day, he was not paid. But James would survive his time at the farm. After writing a check that was bad at cattle auctions, these men tended to disappear. But this time, the police showed up in time because of Jack McCormick. Jack had gone to Nebraska when he left the Copeland farm, happy to be away. But after two weeks and a lot of drinking, Jack called Crime Stoppers and reported what happened at the farm. A reason Jack gave for not calling while he was in Missouri was because the Crime Stoppers number in Nebraska was toll-free, but he would have had to pay in Missouri, and he didn't have money for the call. The name Ray Copeland was already on the police radar. Authorities, like I said, they didn't miss the fact that the string of transient men who bounced checks were connected somehow to working at Ray's farm. He was already being investigated. What police didn't know was that some of these men appeared to have completely vanished after leaving Ray's farm, not just moving on. Though Ray had no violent crimes on his record, McCormick's tip about seeing the bones was taken seriously and police showed up 
at the Copeland's property with a search warrant in hand. Inside the house, the police found a notebook with all the information from James Page and Jack McCormick's bank accounts, and it was all handwritten. Only one person in that house could write that much, and that was Faye Copeland. They also found lease agreements for pasture space. It was Ray leasing the land to two of the missing men, Wayne Warner and Dennis Murphy. Again, this was handwritten, and it matched the handwriting in the bank ledger, and only one person in that house could write. To further tie Faye to at least the financial side of this mess, Inside her purse was a blank check signed by James Page, the most recent farmhand. Other checks from other farmhands were found in the house. Then hidden inside a Polaroid camera case was a piece of paper with a list of men's names. Some of the names had a black X next to them, and some had the word back written. The paper was small, And it's reported in a lot of places that there were 12 to 24 names on the list, but the only accounting I have seen with the actual list of names only has nine. A search of the guest room revealed a closet full of men's clothes in a variety of sizes, many sizes that would not fit Ray or Faye, and there were a number of suitcases. Several more suitcases than a couple who barely left rural Missouri would expect to need. They also found guns, which is not surprising in a farmhouse, but there was a 22 rifle consistent with the tip that came in saying Ray pointed the rifle at someone. The Copelands were arrested and charged on October 9, 1989, initially with conspiracy to steal cattle using bad checks. This was related entirely to what happened with Jack McCormick. Jack himself was arrested in Oregon for his role in the scheme. Even though he had tipped police off to the details of the crime, he was still charged. The police, in the meantime, weren't as worried about the fraud as they were about what Jack said about seeing a skull and a leg bone at the property. While the authorities were tight-lipped, about what they were looking for at the farm, the small-town rumor mill churned, and people said they were looking for bodies. And this was a reasonable deduction, seeing as the police brought in dogs and backhoes for the search. You don't look for bad checks with heavy machinery. And of course, the police were looking for bodies. They were already thinking that if it was true Ray had killed the men he hired, the exes probably meant dead. And the back, maybe that meant they went back to the shelter. Or possibly the list was all men who had been killed and the markings referred to where they were killed or where they were buried. But they found no evidence at the Copeland farm. No blood, no bones, no remains. They brought Jack out there to point out where he saw the bones. And then he backed away from his statement saying maybe that's not what he saw. There were some animal bones found and tested, but that was it. This almost looked like much ado about nothing, until a neighbor gave the police a tip that changed everything. Ray didn't only work the family farm. He also worked at a farm just south of Mooresville near Ludlow, Missouri. 
The tipster said Ray acted like he owned the Ludlow farm, which was 240 acres and more successful than his actual farm. Faye would also go out to that property with him. The owner of the farm said Ray just worked on demand during times he needed more help and Ray needed more income. Ray always kept his head down and worked hard. In 20 years of helping out, the owner said he was never any trouble. And that statement would not age well. On October 16th, the police dug up the dirt floor of a barn on the property. This was a week after the Copeland's arrest for the bad checks. In a shallow grave, three bodies were found on this Ludlow property. It was obvious, based on the state of the remains, that they had been there a few years. So now authorities suspect Ray decided not to bury bodies on his own property, but rather places he had access to. They started searching other farms where he did odd jobs. On October 25th, 1989, they searched a very large farm, 860 acres, that was in the area. Ray worked on the farm for a previous owner years before, but the current owner still let Ray store hay in a barn on the property when he needed the space. When authorities went to search the barn, they found that it was full of hay, so they moved the bales out and found in the dirt floor another shallow grave, only about a foot deep, with a body wrapped in a plastic sheet. Autopsies were performed on the four bodies that had been found, and the skulls were sent to a dental expert for identification. The cause of death was fairly easy to determine because every skull had a single bullet hole in it. It looked like the weapon was a small caliber, like a twenty-two, and shot at close range. One bullet was recovered from one of the first three bodies found, and they were able to link it to the rifle found in that search of the Copeland's home. Identification of the bodies was a little bit trickier. They had to use dental records, so they requested records of every man they knew had worked on the farm. This included Dennis Murphy and Wayne Warner, along with men who were on the list that was found. And the police actually lucked out because they were able to get dental records for most of the men. It's not uncommon for people living a transient lifestyle to not have dental records. And these certainly weren't updated ones. Many were a decade old or more. They didn't account for new tooth loss, which is fairly common for people who don't have access to dental care. Dental care in the U.S. is pretty expensive. Without dental insurance, people aren't going and getting their annual x-rays. But by November 1st, the three men in the first barn were identified as 21-year-old Paul Cowart, 27-year-old John Freeman, and 27-year-old Jimmy Dale Harvey. The man at the second property under the bales of hay was identified a few weeks later, and this was 44-year-old Wayne Warner, who was missing for three years at this point. He was the second man to go missing after working for the Copelands. On November 13th, Ray and Faye were charged with three counts of first-degree murder for Paul, John, and Jimmy. Wayne hadn't yet been identified, so his death was not included in the initial charges. Missouri is a death penalty state. 
we have 17 aggravating factors that can make someone eligible for the death penalty. And it is generally applied to cases where there is serial or mass murder. The attorneys representing Ray and Faye indicated that they would be pleading not guilty at arraignment. And this is pretty standard, as we've seen. Even if police pull over someone with a body in the trunk and they confess, the defendant is usually going to plead not guilty at first to have some time to either negotiate a deal or to figure out a defense strategy if they plan to fight the charges. Though the couple was charged with three murders and a fourth charge was sure to come, the authorities did not stop their search for bodies. They expanded it to every property Ray or Faye ever worked on, had a connection to, or had access to. Let's remember, Ray is about to turn 75 and Faye is 68. They lived in Mooresville for decades. So this search included several properties, and I believe they dug up something like 100 different sites. Based on the press at the time, it sounded like they were looking for at least 12 bodies total. And a fifth body was found on November 24th at the same property where Wayne's body was found. Due to a misshapen bone in the jaw and a belt that said Dennis on it, the body was pretty quickly identified as Dennis K. Murphy, the first known person to go missing. He was found at the bottom of a well, chained to a concrete block. So charges for Wayne and Dennis's deaths were then added to the list. Of these five men, three of them were on the list with an X next to their name. This is that list police found at the Copeland Farmhouse. Dennis and Wayne, the first two to go missing, were not on the list. And I know if you've heard this case before, You're ready to stop me to tell me I'm wrong. All the men were on the list with X's next to their name. I know that's out there. It is reported again and again as a fact. But the court record does not support that. I'm not sure where the misunderstanding entered the narrative. But the court record, the newspaper articles at the time, make this very clear. And the state never said Dennis and Wayne were on the list because they weren't. There were four men total on the list with X's next to their names, the three victims in the barn, and 52-year-old Thomas Parks, who remains missing. Of course, police tried to track down Thomas Parks and a number of other men they know worked at the farm, including those whose names were on the list. The police were not successful in tracking down everyone. In addition to looking for Thomas Parks, police announced they were also looking for Joe Raven, Franklin Hudson, Tony Satters, and Dale Brake. But Thomas Parks was the one authorities most strongly suspected was a victim, since he was the only other man on the list with an X next to his name. And they're going on this theory that X means they were killed. They never did find him, dead or alive, so no charges were brought since they couldn't prove that he had been killed. In the meantime, Ray and Faye are in jail waiting for trial. Faye started writing a few letters to Ray, and these would become pretty important. 
For one, the authorities now had a known handwriting sample to compare to all the handwritten notes in the house, and of course, they all matched Faye's handwriting. And the second important thing was something she wrote in one of those letters. One letter said, quote, nothing found and nothing gained. And then it went on to say that the digger was gone because the police only had 10 days on the warrant and things would then cool down. To the state, this is showing that Faye was a co-conspirator in the murders because she knew there were bodies that the police were looking for and not finding. The tone of the letter is not, they didn't find anything because there's nothing to find, but more like they didn't find that thing we hid. Now, to me, reading the letter as a whole, I don't know, it could be spun to sound like she was just updating him on what she had heard from her attorney. Faye only had an eighth grade education. This letter is full of grammatical errors and spelling mistakes. So it's also possible that she just didn't have the level of writing capability, the sophistication in writing to convey tone well. I mean, I'm loath to defend Faye too much at this point, but I don't find this terribly damning evidence. But the state fully intended on using it as evidence in court. However, before this case could go to trial, Ray and Faye both underwent psychological testing. Faye's was ordered by the court, and Ray's was at the request of his defense counsel, who said he was too senile to stand trial. Faye ended up being found fit to stand trial first, so her trial occurred first. They were being tried completely separately. Faye's trial began in early November 1990. She pleaded not guilty, and her defense was that she was completely in the dark. If Ray did this, which she refused to concede, she had no idea, not just about the murders, but about the cattle stealing as well. How can she have no idea if she's the one keeping lists of dead people with X's next to their names, and she was the one keeping their bank accounts? Faye's attorneys wanted to argue the battered spouse defense. Faye was hesitant to throw Ray under the bus like this, but her attorney pushed for it. Usually, this is an affirmative defense. The defense is saying, yes, I did it, but dot, dot, dot. However, Faye wasn't saying Ray forced her to participate in these killings through abuse. She was still denying knowledge entirely. Her side was saying that it was abuse that caused her to write those names down and keep the bank records without asking questions about what any of it meant. It's why she never questioned why the drifters disappeared and why she never asked Ray about money coming in or out. Decades of being battered by her husband made it so that she would never have challenged him or questioned him on any of these points. Faye's defense had an expert who was going to testify that Faye was suffering from battered spouse syndrome at the time, but the judge would not let the expert testify during the trial. Missouri only has battered spouse syndrome on the books as a self-defense argument. It's not a defense of any other sort. Had Faye killed Ray, then we're talking. Otherwise, it wasn't specifically permitted, which gives the judge discretion, and in this case, the judge said no. 
because Faye wasn't even saying she was coerced to commit a crime. That she was a battered spouse is beside the point. It's not entirely relevant. This is according to the judge, and I do 100% agree that this is what it appears the law is saying. But I think it is a perfectly valid explanation of how and why Faye could have been completely in the dark about what was happening in her own home. It is not overstating things to say that the list of names was the biggest, strongest, most damning piece of evidence against her. Otherwise, what they had was James McCormick saying that Faye told him not to go behind the barn where he saw some bones. He seemed to put Faye on the scene a little bit. But Jack McCormick, as the defense pointed out, wasn't the most credible person. His tip did start the chain of events that led police to finding five bodies, but not one of them was anywhere near where he said it was. They weren't even on the property. Why would Faye need to shoo him away from behind the barn if there's no body there at all anyway? I actually do have thoughts on that that we're going to get to at the end of the episode. So after a nine-day trial, the jury deliberated for two and a half hours. They found Faye guilty on all counts. She immediately started sobbing. She's proclaiming her innocence, saying she didn't do anything. And I think the shock for everyone might not have been the verdict as much as how quickly the jury came to it, figuring that the case had a lot of debatable points. It was hinging on the testimony of Jack McCormick, who was an ex-con and a longtime alcoholic, and some pieces of paper. Three days later, there was a sentencing hearing, and the prosecution pointed out that the couple had made about $32,000 through this cattle rustling, which is less than $70,000 in today's money, and that is over a three- to four-year span. So we're saying five men died for $32,000, and Faye putting an X next to their names showed depravity. We then have our competing experts with the defense being allowed to present battered spouse syndrome in the sentencing phase. They're saying this is a mitigating factor. The state's discounting it. Faye's attorneys said that any role she had was fairly minor anyway. She kept paperwork. And it was not deserving of a death sentence. Family members testified about the ongoing abuse Faye had suffered at Ray's hands as well. But the jury was not swayed. They recommended a life sentence for the murder of Dennis Murphy and then death sentences for the other four. The prosecutor said that this showed the jury really considered the cases individually, that they didn't do a death sentence across the board. They didn't feel the aggravating factors in Dennis's murder were enough for that sentence, so they didn't give it, even though their decision on the others still sent her to death row. And that's if the judge accepts the recommendation, because the jury makes the recommendation, but the judge makes the final sentencing decision. But he was not anticipated to make this ruling until after Ray's trial. In December 1990, after Faye's trial, six experts, three on each side, were trying to decide how senile Ray was. 
They all agreed he had some brain damage, likely from the rodeo injury from years and years and years before. And the defense said that he also had other issues like small strokes, and he was basically psychotic at this point, and he was just unable to aid in his defense. The state's experts conceded to a lot of Ray's issues, but they said he didn't meet the legal threshold for incompetency. The judge agreed with the state, and the trial was going forward. Then Ray sat for an interview with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch after he learned he was going to trial. He said he wanted to get the truth out there. He said he didn't know who killed the four men, but he did know who killed Dennis Murphy. In fact, the people who killed Dennis made him stand as a lookout for them as they dragged the body from a trunk and threw it down the well. Not only that, but Ray said he told police this after his arrest. They found Dennis based on his tip to look there. He didn't say to the paper who killed Dennis, just that it wasn't him and he didn't know who killed the others. When reached for comment, the prosecution said that Ray's accounting of this tip was inaccurate. We, of course, have a huge credibility issue here where it would benefit Ray to say someone else did it, but also his defense had just been arguing he was too out of it to aid in his own defense, so is he really remembering this accurately? Now, Ray had an explanation for the clothes and the suitcases found in the house as well. He said that when the men skipped town with the money that he had put in their bank accounts, they left all their stuff behind. And Ray wasn't just innocent of murdering the men, he was actually a victim of their financial fraud as well because they took money he had paid them for work they never ended up doing. Shortly after this interview, there was an attempt at a plea deal. And to explain how it came about and how it fell apart, I need to give you a little bit of backstory. The prosecutor on Faye and Ray's cases was Doug Roberts, and he actually knew the couple. He represented Ray in a bankruptcy just two years before, and he also represented Faye in a dispute with a bank, litigation that had taken up the last two years. So he didn't just know them vaguely in the past. He had pretty recent contact with them. Faye had waived any conflict of interest claim against Roberts in her case, and that's why he prosecuted that one. Rayside, however, did file to have Roberts disqualified. The judge denied the motion, saying that Roberts and Ray did business a few years back, and it really had nothing to do with what was currently happening. It's not like Ray told Roberts in confidence about killing a bunch of people or about the scam he was engaged in. Roberts had no special information that he could use against Ray, and there really wasn't a conflict here. So when Ray's attorney and Roberts sat down, they were able to strike a deal in this case. Ray would plead guilty on all counts and take the life without parole sentence if they took the death penalty off the table in Faye's trial. Even though the jury recommended it, the judge did not have to sentence her to it. And Roberts really had nothing to lose here. There was no way Ray would live long enough to be executed as he had a degenerative brain disease. 
Faye's health had declined since being arrested, so she likely wouldn't either. So he could save the time and expense of both the trial against Ray and also the state taxpayers paying for the appeals that are automatically granted in a death penalty case. The lawyers took the plea deal to court for approval by Judge Richard Weber on Thursday, January 24th, 1991, the day the trial was supposed to start. And the judge immediately decided to reconsider the defense motion to disqualify Roberts after he heard the terms of the deal. And Richard Weber sustained it. He kicked Roberts off the case. It seemed Judge Weber believed Roberts' relationship with the Copelands actually made him go easy on them. Kenny Holsoff, who was the assistant attorney general helping prosecute the case, was then told to step up. He was going to be the lead prosecutor. He said he couldn't go forward because he was bound by the plea deal, and the judge said he was not bound by it and to go ahead and start jury selection. Of course, Ray's defense team wanted the chance to appeal this ruling, and they actually tried to get Weber thrown off the case for overstepping his bounds and get that plea deal put into effect. But in the end, the trial went forward. Roberts was off, Holsoff was on, and Weber was still the judge. The plea deal, which was never accepted by the court, was now not binding and off the table. The trial had a false start again on February 11th, 1991, with jury selection in Rolla, which is a town three and a half hours south of Chillicothe. Even that far out, they could not find enough impartial jurors. This case was huge, huge news. So then they moved jury selection out to St. Louis County, which is about the same distance, but just a larger population to draw from. It wasn't only people who knew the details about the case and had already formed an opinion that were the problem. There was also the question of the death penalty for a 76-year-old man. They needed to find jurors who were open to voting for it if he was found guilty. These delays meant the trial didn't begin until March 1991. Ray's trial covered pretty much all the information we've already talked about, and he was found guilty on all five counts. The jury also recommended the death penalty for him. On April 27, 1991, Judge Weber formally sentenced Faye Copeland to four death sentences and one life sentence. At the age of 69, she was the oldest person given the death penalty in Missouri. A month later, she would lose that title when Ray Copeland, 76, was given five death sentences. Of course, both appealed, but Ray died about two and a half years later before his appeal went very far. Faye's appeal was heard in 1996, and she had a long list of issues. Only one really got anywhere with the appellate court, but it wasn't enough to get her conviction or her sentence overturned. But in August 1999, on her 78th birthday, Faye learned that her federal habeas appeal had worked. The judge ruled that some of the statements during the penalty phase made by the prosecution that were comparing Faye's crimes to other crimes was prejudicial, and Faye's attorney not objecting was ineffective assistance. 
That overturned the death sentence, but it didn't change the verdict. The judge pointed at the evidence of Faye's guilt and that she showed depravity, saying that she made quilts out of the dead men's clothes. And this is an interesting point here about the quilts. Faye was a quilter her whole life and did lots of patchwork and rag quilts with whatever was laying around. And Doug Roberts said in his closing statement that she made quilts from the men's clothes, showing how little she cared that people had been killed. Except, I mean, we don't know that she knew who the clothes belonged to or that they weren't just abandoned by a farmhand who ran off, like Ray said. But the biggest issue is that no such quilt was entered into evidence as far as I can tell. Roberts was arguing evidence that was never admitted, and I'm wondering why her attorney didn't object to that, why that's not on the record if it really didn't exist. Anyway, Faye was resentenced to life without parole, but was given medical parole after suffering a stroke in 2002. She was also dealing with a number of other health issues. She died in December 2003 at the age of 82. She was living in a nursing home under an assumed name, and she maintained her innocence to the end. She had the support of her children, who, while admitting they don't know how much their mother knew, they do know how violent and abusive their father was. They knew their mother's very conservative beliefs about a woman's place, being subservient to her husband, and they fully believe that within this mindset, Faye really could have been ignorant about what was happening around her. So with this case, there are a few things that really stand out to me. So one is the bones that Jack McCormick claimed he saw behind the barn. What are the odds that he thought he saw bones and it turned out Ray and Faye were serial killers with bodies somewhere else? I mean, that would be a huge coincidence. The odds to me seem slim to none. So what's up with this? Is it possible that Ray moved the remains after Jack saw them? the bodies that were found had not been moved to those spots recently. So this would have been a sixth victim if the bones were moved. It's also possible Jack knew more than he said about the details of this case, but he lied about where the bones were. I did find a few innocence advocates who believe Ray is innocent, and this may have been a frame job. Within that narrative, this would be Jack tipping the police to Ray to make it look like he's the one who killed the men when it was actually someone else. The only way to get them to Ray's property is to claim there were bones there. And another thing that stands out, the first murder we know about happened when Ray was nearly 72 years old. I mean, D'Angelo, the suspected Golden State Killer, was about that age when he was arrested, but his crimes were decades earlier. What turned Ray from a domestic abuser, an all-around jerk, to a serial killer in his 70s? You can say he needed the money, but he needed money lots of other times in his life and never did anything like this. So is it possible there were more victims in his past? Or is it that his degenerative brain disease had progressed 
to where he lost that inhibition. I want to hear what you think on Get Vocal this Thursday. Do you think Faye knew what she was writing down and participating in? Was Ray framed? What about pursuing the death penalty against elderly defendants who will die before it's carried out? They're doing this with the Golden State Killer right now. If he is tried, convicted, and given the death sentence, he's going to then also be provided with assistance to file his appeal. Is this just a waste of taxpayer money just to give someone the death penalty? Thursday on Get Vocal, we're going to talk about this, and I'm sure even more. Pick a case from my back catalog. We're going to be ready to talk about it. But before I end this episode, I want to get back to the victims. In serial killings, I have said this before, victims' names, details, it all becomes a blur. It gets jumbled. The real story here gets lost in the story of the killer. So I want to talk about these five men. These men became victims because they were vulnerable. It's come up before that poverty makes people vulnerable. These men were given an opportunity that they couldn't turn down because they knew nothing else close to this deal was coming. They were barely going to make minimum wage anywhere else. They would not get room and board. And the reason for that is because we have so many barriers for people with criminal records to get jobs. I don't want to make everything about the Tiger King because I feel like you can't go anywhere without hearing about it. But this is how Joe Exotic hired for his zoo. He spun it to look like he was some great guy giving jobs and homes to people who were desperate because no one else would hire them with their background. But then he paid them hardly anything at all. So now they have no mobility away from that job because they don't have enough money to save to find another place to live. He had them living in dilapidated trailers. They were eating expired food that Walmart donated to feed tigers. Maybe that's the moral of the story. Maybe this is what we have to learn from this situation. We have to stop making people pay for prior convictions for the rest of their lives. Or we are just creating a vulnerable and desperate class of people, human beings, who are going to be exploited by the Joe Exotics of the world and then disposed of by the Ray Copelands. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crimelines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 